On November 9th, I was awakened very early by the ping of a text. It was from a former student who later apologized for texting so early. It read simply, Pfizer's vaccine prevents 90% of infections. Good news. What good news to wake up to in a year that has had more than its share of bad news. Here was the first indication that our time of enforced loneliness, of no singing, of worship far apart, even for St. George's 7.30 a.m. standards, our time of lost work and losing loved ones and all the other losses that have become the norm in COVID times would soon be over. I think in my adult life, in terms of its scope, it's the best news I've ever heard. I mention it this morning because this Sunday marks Advent 2, which is all about the proclamation of really good news. Good news of an even greater magnitude than Pfizer's. News that emphatically addresses, once and for all, a deadly curse on human existence. It sounds very dramatic when put that way, but that is how the New Testament regards the significance of the arrival of John the Baptist and the news he brings. This Sunday, I want us to hear afresh that news and to imagine fully what it promises and to consider if we have responded to it with all the joy and thanksgiving and fullness that it merits. John the Baptist stands at a hinge in the history of the world, a hinge between curse and blessing, between being held responsible and being forgiven. Just as there is a rim to which one can hike on the Natchez Trace that determines whether water flows to the Tennessee River or to the New River, John the Baptist stands marking the watershed of salvation history. On one side of that watershed, there is a world that St. Paul describes as subject to futility a world that is inexorably under the oppression of sin and death, a world that stands outside proper relationship with God and can do absolutely nothing about it. That is not to say that God was inactive or that he had not made promises. The prophets were sent to tell the inhabitants of that world that God was going to send deliverance. There was foreshadowing of God's redemptive heart like the exodus from Egypt, like the return from exile in Babylon. But these events were just moments of a temporal moment. They were glimmerings. They weren't the whole way. Kind of like news that there is a vaccine being developed, but it's not yet formulated, not completely. And on the other side of that watershed, the promise of God's redemptive plan is fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God, who accomplishes once and for all the salvation of the world by his obedient life, his good life, 
his sinless life, given voluntarily in exchange for the lives of sinners. With the death of Jesus on the cross, there is a completely new future available to sinful humans. Using the geologic rim analogy, our course is shifted from a river that leads to death in a desert into a river that leads to eternal life. It's not very contemporary to see world history as demarcated in this way, before and after. Interestingly though, our calendar system still obliquely refers to it, centering its counting from an origin point between BC and AD, before Christ, Interestingly, the BC term is from English words, and AD, Anno Domini, which was the shortened Latin phrase, Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even our accommodation to a multi-faith word where we refer to CE, the Common Era, and BCE, before the Common Era, still measures earthly time around the same event, the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Which conveniently makes sense for those of us who believe that when John tells people to prepare the way, he's proclaiming the arrival of God himself in Jesus, who establishes a new kingdom on earth. There was an earth that was doomed a realm where the power of darkness reigned. And then, by the action of God, a rescue was staged and executed to free us, as we read in Colossians. And I love this. I love this sentence. From the power of darkness and to transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the good news. Now, one might very rationally say at this point, but any thinking, observant person can see that the power of darkness still causes troubles even after Jesus. Bad things still happen in this world and even in our own hearts. And that is true. But what is also true, and even more true, is that in a spiritual way, in an eternal way, that we cannot completely observe with our natural eyes, the power of evil has been broken. It will not be permitted to exist in perpetuity. It's like a vine, which has been cut off at the base, and I've actually seen these at Percy Warner Park, thick trunks of vines cut at the base. It may go on looking green for a while as it clings to the tree, but its days are numbered. We live in an already not yet time. Something absolute has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but humanity and whole of creation still awaits the final restoration of all things. One of the most important things to recognize about this epic where we find ourselves is that there is still time 
for us to respond to the voice of John the Baptist. It's not too late to decide that we want to be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. I mean, if we were looking at this from a Dickens point of view, we're still Scrooge in the early hours of the night. And I want you to consider right now, have I received an invitation into the kingdom of the beloved Son that I have not yet fully accepted? Have I chosen instead to remain in the familiar old world? Are there comfortable habits that I do not want to leave behind? They're keeping me from accepting that invitation. Do I want the apparent freedom to live my life any way I choose? So I would prefer not to be fully delivered into a new kingdom where Jesus is in charge. I had a vision recently, not like a, an apocalyptic fancy vision, but just a like picture vision, uh, of someone that I love standing with one foot on a dock and one in a boat that was leaving. The dock was the old familiar world with all its apparent freedoms, all those paths you could access to familiar places. The boat was life with Christ, with all its actual freedom, with all its fullness, with all its life, with all its good and reliable promises. Well, while you let one part of your brain consider that question, have I received an invitation into the kingdom of the beloved son that I have not fully accepted? let us turn our attention to the figure of John the Baptist. The first thing about him is that he is odd. He wears camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he eats locusts and wild honey. And that was every bit as strange to his contemporaries as it would be now if we encountered it at the Bellmead Kroger. Along with his oddness, he's unafraid of people's opinions. He's not afraid of the temple authorities. He isn't afraid of Herod, who eventually puts him in prison. And he isn't afraid of Herodias, his wife, who had John beheaded. John was singularly focused on accomplishing his mission, which was pointing away from himself and toward the coming Messiah and his good news. John was a prophet, but not just any prophet. To understand his significance in context, we need to look back at the Old Testament. The final book of our Christian Old Testament is Malachi, the final of the 12 minor prophets. And I say our Christian Old Testament because the Hebrew Bible does not end with Malachi. Christians change the order of the books to highlight something that is very important. The last words of Malachi are about the figure Elijah, a prophet who was in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. The Jews believed that Elijah, who had never died but been swooped up into heaven by a chariot, would return to earth, and that would signal the day of the Lord, the arrival of the Lord. It would bring judgment. 
Well, in the Christian Bible, after reading that prophecy about Elijah returning, you turn the page to the New Testament, and very quickly, you meet John the Baptist, who is wearing camel's hair, and the alert reader realizes, oh, John the Baptist is the figure of Elijah. I mean, no one is saying that he's some sort of reincarnation, just saying that John is stepping into the role of Elijah to proclaim the arrival of God himself on earth, because that is what Elijah does. And the message John proclaims is this. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to tie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We hear that statement, and it does not sound as much like an invitation to join Jesus in his kingdom as it does like a fiery judgment. And that is because it is a fiery judgment. But that's part of the good news. It is good news that God is not indifferent to corruption, to evil, and to our own destructive selfishness. What is of absolute importance to know, however, is that this Jesus, whom John proclaims, did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it with his life. That's so important. I don't know about you, but I have a thin skin. I'm afraid of being judged. But Jesus comes to clarify. He comes to us to clarify what is good and what is bad. To show us what is life and what is ultimately just death. And more than that, he offers us this gift of grace. And it is real. It is not just a hashtag great. It's not just a little word. It has been secured with his very life. I mean, if, you, if you're one of those people who thinks, oh, my sins are too big for Jesus. No, they are not. His grace for you is secured with his life. And that's the life of God given. So by this grace, he gives us the freedom to choose life to choose repentance and receive forgiveness. Jesus offers more than just symbolic rinse in the Jordan. That's what John could give, a symbolic rinse in the Jordan. But Jesus gives us the invitation to be transferred into his kingdom. At the most important and basic level, responding to the proclamation of John the Baptist is saying to Jesus, I repent. I was speaking the other day with an elderly gentleman whom I respect greatly and dearly love. And one of the reasons I do is that he has shown over the course of his life an incredible willingness to repent, to let his mind be changed, 
to acknowledge his prejudices, to change the way he speaks, to give away his money for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> to give away his Ferrari for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is responding to the message of John the Baptist. We all have that choice today. In a moment, we will all be invited to participate in the great Eucharistic feast that celebrates the kingdom of heaven now, that proclaims the death of Jesus and that grace until he comes again. And I invite you in the time between now and then to reflect. Do I still have one foot on a dock? And what's keeping it there? Is it my stuff? Is it some habit that I just like and I don't want to give up? What is it that is keeping one foot on that dock? And here's an opportunity just to say, Jesus, here's the situation. Get my foot off that dock and let me be with you in your boat. Amen.